0: Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 3, sponsored by the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. This season of Marrow Masters focuses on the patient perspective and many needs regarding bone marrow and stem cell transplant. Here is your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome to
1: Marrow Master's Patient Podcast Series, Season 3. Today we have Roy Proctor of Oregon with us. Roy is 32 years old and has undergone two bone marrow transplants for AML and unfortunately has experienced other consequences such as GVHD as a result of the transplant. Roy was only 19 years old in 2007 when he had his first transplant. Then he was 23 in 2011 having a second transplant. It's a lot. But Roy will share how, in spite of the setbacks, he feels lucky to not only have survived them, but he is thriving because of them. It is my pleasure to introduce Roy Proctor
2: to you. Hi, Peggy. Thanks for having me here. I'm sorry to do this right off the bat, but I have to correct you on your pronunciation of Oregon. Um, (laughs) I used to live on the East Coast, so it's a common thing. Over there, people told me they always played Oregon Trail as a kid. So it was a great way to, you know, meet people and tell them they're wrong right off the bat. So pleasure to be here.
1: I love it, Roy. Yep. I'm from the East Coast and I'm from Long Island. And my kids have a lot of fun with me the way I say certain words. So forgive me. (laughs) All right. Let's talk. Please share your story with us today.
2: When I was 12, I went into the just general practitioner. I had allergies back then. Uh, seasonal allergies. So we went to get some medication for it. And the doctor thought I look pale. So ordered a CBC and everything came back as a plastic anemia. So all my blood counts were very low and we didn't really know why I wasn't sick. So, you know, doctors do what they do. They troubleshoot and they test theories. And we ended up a few months later having the diagnosis Of a really rare congenital disease called Fanconi's anemia, or FA for short. So, what that always leads to generally is bone marrow failure. Uh, That's AML. Okay. uh, It develops into. So, we didn't go to transplant right away. As you say, I, I wasn't until I was 19. But what we did do was monitor my marrow through bone marrow biopsies every few months up until I was 18 to check the progression of chimerism into AML. So I spent my childhood in the hospital quite a bit. I had a lot of practice with getting sick because of the low immune system. So when it came time for transplant at 18, I was, you know, somewhat prepared for it, uh, to be honest. I think it actually kind of helped in a lot of ways, you know, being a friend of the hospital, so to speak, but. When I was 19, it progressed into AML, and we had been, you know, searching for years for transplant centers, because FA complicates the transplant process. And we settled on New York at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and so I had my first BMT there at 19. I actually have fond memories of it. I think I grew up in a very small, rural Oregon town, 1,200 people, and it was stifling. You know, I think I would have felt that way anyway, just because of my personality. Yep. But I think having, you know, a disease in a small town like that was very you know, stifling as well. It pigeonholed me in and I just was excited to get out, to be in Manhattan and to be anonymous, really. So fun memories of it. It went well, so we thought. And we monitored, you know, like everyone else, like every year for changes and when I was 23, I, I noticed this rash in my arms. It was symmetrical, and it was little tiny red dots, and it just frightened me because it looked like acute GVHD. So I convinced my doctors in Portland to do a bone marrow biopsy, and we did, got the results back. What do you know? The AML's back. Um, so we planned to do the second transplant, and I chose to have it done in Portland. I wanted to do a different protocol. So the transplant works but because it was a different protocol I developed graft versus host disease and unfortunately it became a real problem. I dealt with it probably for 7 years which is an easy thing for me to say now but it was just never ending you know in the midst of it. Unfortunately, it abated for whatever reason we really don't know why in 2017 and I was able to get back to life And whatnot. Um, I've had a few secondary cancers from BMT, the squamous cell carcinomas. The first two were pretty easy surgeries. The third, I did treatment this past summer. It was chemo and radiation, but you know, I have to be honest, it was a cakewalk. Um, I, I only had a bone marrow transplant, you know, to kind of compare it to and to anticipate as far as what is it like to get cancer. Sure. So I was pretty surprised and uh, happily surprised to find out that the targeted chemo and radiation wasn't all that too much to deal with. So I survived. I'm here. I think I've learned things along the way because of these obstacles. I've lost things, certainly, but you know I've gained things. I look forward to chatting about it,
1: Roy. That's such a great way to put it. I know that you've talked to me about controlling what you can control and letting go of what you can't.
2: Can you elaborate on this a little bit for us? Sure. So this was kind of this uh, theory I, I came up with about how I wanted to approach transplant before my first. So none of my family members matched me, so we had to do the global search for a match and it took quite some time. Uh, It took, you know, three to four months. So I had time between, you know, making the go call, you know, we're going to transplant and actually going to transplant. And I kind of absconded for a week to Hawaii in that time. I didn't really know anything about traveling. I just went, um, I took a backpack and I went through the big island and, you know, stayed in the jungle for a week. And I had time to really think about things and how I wanted to approach it because I was nervous about transplant. Sure. I'd never had a bone marrow transplant before. It was new and it was scary. What I came to the conclusion of is that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to live and and be healthy and well, or if it's not going to work and I'm going to die. and Both ideas were really kind of scary to me, um, exciting and scary. Things would be different afterward, at least. But what I realized is that I really can't control which outcome I arrive at. And, you know, either way, whatever the outcome is, I'm going to be there along for the ride on my way to it. Uh So what I really wanted to do is say, okay, so I can't control the outcomes. There's so many variables I can't control about transplant, but what I can control was my attitude. So how did I want to experience this you know, journey and wherever it might lead? The two things I kept coming back to were thoughts of joy and curiosity. I, I just wanted to have a good time um, <laughs> and I wanted to be social and I wanted to learn new things. I remember thinking you know, how cool is this that I'm going to find out what it's like to, you know, have chemo and radiation, like, I'll have this shiny bald head, and it'll be like, I'm in a secret club, you know, that only cancer people know what it's like to go through this. Okay. And so that's what I mean, you know, more so the curiosity, like kind of just seeing what it feels like, you know, to have a bone marrow transplant and all these new things. Wow, what an open mind you had at that time. Yeah, I was lucky in that way, I think. And I think, you know, I kind of mentioned previously that being sick as a kid and in the hospital quite a bit prepared me for that transplant. At least I had something to kind of compare it to, to anticipate.
1: I could see that. And as you know, we say all the time, cancer is not for wimps. I mean, this is tough stuff. And you're a perfect example of that, Roy, I admire your tenacity and your determination to live your life. Oh, thanks. Uh, You're welcome, Roy. I know that you really benefited from therapy, and this is something people sometimes don't want to talk about. It's just so important, and I'd really love to hear more from you about the benefits of finding someone to help you out with all of this.
2: Sure. Yeah, well, um, (laughs) first of all, I'm never going to be that person who, you know, walks up to you on the street and tells you a therapy story, like, oh, my therapist (laughs) told me this. But uh, what I uh, would love to do is tell you how I got into it and how it's helped me. Um, I grew up, like I said, in a rural Oregon town. So therapy and psychology in general was very taboo. And there was definitely that stigma over it. I, I remember, I think as a kid, my parents would like threaten me with therapy, so it was like a bad thing, right? And I don't think that's uncommon. I think, unfortunately, that's possibly more the, the norm of the behavior. So I first got into it when I was 19 in New York. Sloan Kettering has this great integrated healthcare model where a psychiatrist is on the main team of doctors. So when you're making the rounds two or three times a week, one of the stops you make is to your friendly local therapist. And he helped me. For the first time in my life, I was able to talk about these things I was feeling that I thought only I was feeling them because I'd never been able to talk about them with anyone who would relate to them. You know, I was so different as a kid growing up. I had different obstacles to confront just the fear of death, you know, is so powerful and how it shapes and molds you. And when you have to confront it at any time in your life, but, you know, I confronted it when I was young and I never talked about it. I think it built this pressure up, you know, over these years, like I have to be careful, you know, about who I want to talk about this kind of thing with. What if they... Don't understand what if they think I'm weird uh-huh. because of it. You know, I'm going to be very alone, you know, eventually if I do. Sure. So, having that outlet, you know, at first, uh, you know, if I was angry, you know, I could be angry. If I was scared, I could be scared. If I had normal teenage angst, you know, I could have normal teenage angst and talk about boomers and all that. But it relieved pressure on me. And so, that was an integral. Part of my bone marrow transplant experience, and it was something I knew helped me, so after I left, I stuck around with therapy. Um, when I moved back to Portland, I found a therapist that I really connected with, and my little piece of wisdom here is that when you're trying to find a therapist, you should approach it like buying a used car. you know you should really check under the hood, make sure um, it 's not a lemon and <laughs> A test drive, and if you don't like it, don't be afraid to move on. There's other cars in the world. Good analogy. But I connected with this therapist, and we saw each other once a week, sometimes twice a week. And I was really able to talk about my childhood and normal parent-child dynamics, but also how disease entered into it. And I continue. Actually, it was such a good relationship. I'm with the same therapist today, and it's a really big part of my life. What I think it gave me most is the ability to know myself, which is kind of like a weird Greek um, mythological thing to say, I guess. Uh, I sound like the Oracle at Delphi. <laughs> but it's something that makes sense, I think, the more you go. I was saying earlier how I thought the greatest thing about therapy was alleviating kind of the pressure of keeping things to myself. and. I think the process of saying these things, enunciating, delineating these into words, these kind of more amorphous thoughts that are floating around in our heads. By doing that, it helps me to figure out how I feel. Um, It helps me learn more about how I think, what I think. Okay. Because I don't don't really know, you know, what I'm going to say when I go to therapy. I don't, you know, have a bullet point list. I just talk. Sure. Like how we're doing now, you know. Um you just talk and whatever comes out is often interesting. And you know, you can always kinda pivot somehow to find something out about yourself. So that's what I mean when I say it's helped me to know myself. Uh Uh-huh. The benefits of that are legion. You know, um, there's a lot of them. I think I'm just comfortable with who I am. I mean, I went from being the kid who felt different, you know, I felt you know, looking back, kind of like a boxed in, like a freak, you know, not in a a terrible, like, you know, let's get the pitchforks, you know, and and storm the castle kind of freak, but just so different. And it was noticeably how people treated me differently to feeling now, you know, that I own that, you know, I own that I'm different and it's empowering to me. Good for you, Roy. With your program a, a little bit, but I'm Work with a couple other programs, LLS and Immerman Angels, where I mentor or at least friends patients going through bone marrow transplant.
1: That's really terrific, Roy. I wanted to ask you a little bit about being a strong self advocate. Okay. Could you briefly share any tips for patients on making sure that they stay strong and they remember to advocate for themselves?
2: I think it's invaluable skill to be able to. Discuss things with your doctor. Well, I think the first valuable piece of advice I can give is that doctors are human. They're experts in their field, specifically, sure, but never assume they're experts uh, do anything outside of that field. And I guess the question is how you can not become an expert, but you know, learn to understand the language you know they're speaking of their field. If it's you know hematology. How do you learn to speak the language? You know, the hematologist sort of thing. When I was in New York, my head doctor there encouraged me to understand all I could scientifically about the process and to understand what my disease was like or, you know, why things were happening to me and why they're doing that specific treatment. He gave me, I think, some literature at first. Uh, Doctors often have kind of like easy to digest introduction literature. And aside from that, you know, I I don't have this, you know, silver bullet advice. I just, I was always very interested in science and that analytical style of thinking. And so I took to it kind of naturally. I just voraciously read about the immune system, the formation of blood, hematopoiesis. And however you get there, maybe if you're not in college or don't have access to that when I was in New York, I did this great thing where I audited classes and it's really inexpensive and it's really no pressure because you're not graded. I would suggest, you know, taking a simple biology course, which sounds like a lot and maybe it is. Of course, nowadays there's all these online things. Absolutely. So what I would say is if you don't have the resources or the time to allocate, to take in a class. There's tons of reputable sources on the internet, thankfully. I think the bottom line is to get to know your disease, get to know cancer a little bit, get to know the immune system. Where it will help you at some point is when there's a decision to be made in your healthcare. Um, maybe it's one that's not uh, terribly meaningful, but maybe there's one that is So the most consequential decision I made uh, in terms of self-advocacy was where to have my second transplant. I read through protocols of places and I agreed most with one out in Portland. They were kind enough to allow me to have input on kind of the basic structure or what it would be like, especially the use of something called T-cells, which can help to eradicate cancers. But come with a higher risk of graft-versus-host disease. Okay. Which I did develop, but I knew it was a trade-off. And I think it was a good decision in the end.
1: Well, that's great, Roy. Thank you so much for sharing that. One more thing I'd like to bring up. How are you doing during the pandemic? How has life changed being a survivor? And how are you coping with coronavirus on top of everything else right now?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, it's novel. That's true. That's true and so far that everybody is sticking you know to this semi quarantine but it's not you know necessarily novel to me i think other transplant patients would probably agree with that we've spent a lot of time in isolation before you know going through bone marrow transplants where your immune system is significantly weakened if not altogether gone but it is different i think In some ways, it's more difficult, you know, in in transplant, I felt like I had a lot of support. It's that kind of um, the appeal of hospitals to me. It was always that people are there to help me when I'm struggling. I felt safe there. I felt supported. I always remember being close and having great relationships with my nurses um, and volunteers who came. So in a way, it's a little more isolating right now. Than it is in transplant. But I found ways to counter that. You know, basically having, uh, you know, I call them iBeers, um, virtual beer conversations uh-huh. with friends. And so I, um, I've been doing that pretty frequently just to stay socially engaged. Good for you, Roy. Yeah, of course, there's been a lot of Netflix being watched. And I've discovered a good trilogy, Something to Read. You know, I'm hanging in there. It's just kind of waiting, see what happens. But we're good with waiting, I think, transplant patients. We've done it before.
1: That is so true. You're very resilient. I keep saying we could all learn from our survivors a thing or two about, you know, not being wimps during this whole thing.
2: You know, when it was first kind of starting, I had that terrible schadenfreude. fraud. Like, I got a little kick out of seeing all you. So I call you people normies because you're normal. <laughs> I thought it was just funny how you normies were freaking out. And um, it gave me some sort of validation, you know, for my life of medical turmoil. Okay,
1: fair enough. Yeah. Very interesting, Roy. I always enjoy talking with you. And I thank you so much for your perspective today, your wisdom and your experiences.
2: I'm happy to be, you know, part of it. And I think your organization does great things. I'm happy to be associated with you.
1: Uh, Thanks, Roy. You take good care and stay in touch, and we will catch up another time soon. Okay.
0: Sounds great. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. Feel free to share this episode via social media, text, or email. To hear more, subscribe for free to Marrow Masters in your favorite podcast app. To learn more about the resources available to patients and caregivers, check out the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link at nbmtlink.org. That's nbmtlink.org or just tap the link below in the show notes.